Gosh, this is going to be... Let's start. Are there, gosh. Boy, is this a trap. There's no way to tighten that, is there, Mike? Let's start. Any any prayers, requests tonight? Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself um, through the day. Um, I ask for a special blessing for all of us during Lent. Um, hard time. Um, in our pride, we so often think we have to do great things to be good, and very often it's the smaller things that sometimes are so hard. So during this Lent, strengthen each of us, please, to do small things, to learn to take some pleasure in them, to be glad, even though they're small. Um, we start with small things that get bigger, even as we age. But strengthen us in um, this Lenten period. The two things that you call us to do constantly are to fast and to pray. Um, fasting teaches us to put ourselves away. Praying helps us more readily turn to others, to you and others around us. So strengthen our efforts to do both this Lent. And I ask for a blessing um, on the work that we're doing. Melville's an amazing um, poet, prophet. And I think as we go along, everybody will see that um, he's actually doing something with the Protestant world and indirectly helping all of us, non-Christians, hopefully, and um, Christians in other denominations, Catholics and others. But um, um, Help all of us um, to see, and whatever it is we learn, help us to um, put it into practice, to not just leave these things in our minds, but live them, bring them to our world, make you more present, because you are everywhere in this book. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. Um, let's see. I don't think I have any business. The, um, the one thing I'll come to that has to do with class business actually gets us into my outline. So let's, let's look at the poetry tonight. Um, what I'd like to do that's going to be a little bit strange for everybody here is do some poetry of Alan Tate's. I, you've heard me mention his name before. I think he's one of the most important um, literary figures of the 20th century. He and Eliot, I think, were the two finest critics, and they did more to help us understand what was going on in the literature. This is going to be a big point tonight. This is going to be huge. This is going to be huge. 
I hope I can do it justice. They did more than probably anybody in the century to help us learn how to read literature and to see that literature wasn't just this pastime fancy stuff that in some ways it was prophetic because it was helping us to see things we wouldn't see without them. And Tate was a poet too, one of the most important American poets. Remember we've read The Cross, it's a dark, dark poem. But I'm going to read some more of his poetry because he's actually going to be dealing with some of the things that Melville are de is dealing with, except at an earlier period. Um, and I'm hoping that's becoming clear to you guys and to all of us as we go along. But not tonight. But I'm going to um, read some of his poetry. I gave you, you, you should have picked up two copies, one with a couple of poems by Hopkins and a set by Tate. One of them has to do with Alice in the Looking Glass. She jumps into a mirror. The other one is called Swimming, and it's about um, um, the lynching of a Negro in the turn of the century. And it happened, actually, it, in Tate's lifetime, it actually took place. He was a young boy, and there was a lynching of a Negro um, who actually committed a crime. But instead of being taken through the justice system, he was, the justice system, he was lynched. And Tate reenacts that. And one of the reasons I want, I want to read it in this class is because it's actually dealing with something we're going to be dealing with here. But when you read it, um, keep in mind Christ's crucifixion. The stations, the, the disciples moving with him and losing one of them, and Christ's death and its effect. So just keep that, the stations, the trial, in your mind as you read because it just seems like a boy actually begins with an invocation he's invoking Mary but it, it's it's from the point of view of a man looking back at a time when he was a boy experiencing this lynching um, it takes place in a beautiful weather it's um, it's springtime I think the kids are very young they're all innocent they're kids and um, they suddenly hear this posse approaching and they get caught up in this what happened. So it's, it's from the perspective of a, of a young boy going out with other friends to find a swimming hole. So it's an ordinary day and this lynching breaks into it. So when you read it, just keep that in mind, okay? Um, we'll read a couple of his poems because they are, they are tough, tough-minded poems, okay? But tonight I wanted to read one that I thought was particularly appropriate when we go through the readings tonight, you're going to see that, that in very subtle, understated ways, Melville is exposing something violent to our human nature, and I think particularly to the Protestant world. It's something the Protestant world's not aware of. If you look at the characters that we've been reading, Mrs. Hussey, Father Mapple, Peleg Bildad. Um, Uh-oh. Are you? Because I think... Oh, get, can, you, can, you get, can you click on Chuck and Lori? Are? Um, where was I? Where was I? If you look at all the characters in the story, you find that they're all Christians, and they're completely um, unaware 
of any failings to their faith. Okay? So I'm assuming it's going to speak to all of us. I mean, we have to look at our faith and ask us how seriously we're following Christ's calling us to a cross. Okay? <laughs> That's at the center. And it is the one thing I think all of us don't want to do. But that's at the center of our work, okay? So we've already experienced some of the characters and um, seen weaknesses, failings, hypocrisies that they're unaware of. And Ishmael's treatment of them is all comic, um, but this is before he gets on this voyage with Ahab and, and goes off to sea to hunt whales and everything that he's gonna be bring back to tell us. So just keep that in mind. But I wanted to underscore one point before we started, and that is that there's something violent hidden in the Christian character as it's presented in the New England East, the, North, um, um, the Northeast, okay? So just keep that in mind. Um, God's Grandeur is a poem by Hopkins. We've read it before. But in it, he's going to talk about the way men keep trotting on nature. At Melville's time, Melville's talking about um, New Englanders hunting for whales. So a whole commercial enterprise is going to go out to sea and it's going to rape nature. It's going to commit all these violent acts against sharks. I'm going to go to some passages just to underscore that. So we've got a, a Christian community going out to sea and um, working it for all of its worth as a commercial enterprise so they can make money. It's going to be underscored today. In Hopkins' poem, he's celebrating, affirming the great grandeur, the glory of God's creation, but he also has lines in there that indicate that men abuse it. And I was thinking when I was reading Melville earlier, um, when he's talking about going to sea to get oil, Think about the oil industry today. I mean, I, I can't, I, honestly, I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating to make a point here. When, I, when we come here every Tuesday, because I don't get out on the road much and drive, but it's, it's impossible to get out on the road on South Lake and come, what is it, west? And um, without seeing lines of car all day long and ask myself, where, where do we get the oil so that, and almost every car has got one driver. So, so, so we can enjoy the, what we call the freedom and independence of having a car on our own. We've got cars lined up all over the country. This is just here in South Lake. Multiply that times what is, what, 100,000 cities across the United States. All the oil we consume um, so that we can enjoy our private self whatever it is we want. So Melville's writing a story about a whaling industry going to sea and um, um, drawing on the resources of nature, if I can put it as nicely as I can. But there are hidden aspects to it that we're gonna see, okay? But here in Hopkins, Hopkins is celebrating this great glory of God and the fact that no matter what men do, the Holy Spirit keeps coming back, that nature is resourceful, it's there, okay? So God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. 
It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. The punishments we get from God are blessings. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. We've got things on our feet that get in the way of our feeling, what's underneath us and what we're doing. And for all this nature is never spent, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah bright wings. We've seen the, um, remember the Italian sonnet? It's an octave with eight lines that rhyme in a sestet and the octave always gives us an actual experience and the sestet gives us a reflection on that experience, the, the wind hover, which we've done a number of times. Is it? And I've talked about the way lines move. Remember, you, you, you have to read rhetorically and, and the poet uses lines the same way a musician does. So watch the way Hopkins runs across lines and then like in the first um, quatrain, how all the lines move and a third line suddenly spills over. It's called an enjambment. It goes over and then it stops after that first word crushed. Are you following? It's like a whole impetus is moving across the line, pushing and suddenly, abruptly, because look at the rest of the lines. Is there any other line in the poem in which the first foot is stopped? Look at all lines. You won't find it, right? That's, is everybody following me? There, you won't find it. Why does he do that? To make us pause on the word crushed. Okay. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Boom. Okay. Okay, so here we go. Um, I want to start tonight the way I've done a number of times in the past by asking questions now rather than later, okay? Um, and <laughs> I have a confession um, that you'll probably... Um, I'm funny. One of my favorite teachers at UD, um, all-time favorite teachers, was a man named Leopold de Alvarez. He was in politics. I, had, I did a minor in politics. Um, and I remember him saying more, than, more times than I can remember, don't ever overlook the obvious. He wouldn't give lectures except to freshman classes. In the graduate classes, we sat down and he asked us to take like, parts of Shakespeare. He's in politics. I learned, I probably learned more from him in politics about Shakespeare than I did from most of the English teachers in the school. I'm not kidding, except maybe a couple. Took maybe a couple. I shouldn't have said that here. It may get back to me. Um, 
But he said one thing that was profound, and it's so simple, so stupid. Don't overlook the obvious. How many educated people today, because they think they're smart, don't take the obvious seriously enough? If there's anything we're doing, I mean, the poetry I'm reading, I hope it's, you know, we're going back to obvious things, but poets are finding something right there in front of us that we don't see. Don't overlook the obvious. I've been struggling with this one question for years, and it hit me, I'm not going to tell what, because I'm not going to embarrass myself more than I already am. It hit me before class, so I had to write the questions down, you'll see in a minute. Um, you don't have them on your sheet, because Ellie had already printed the sheets off. But I will send out, so I, down, I, I put our outline on, on our uh, website. Um, like make, sh make sure, we've got your email, that's right. Um, go, go online and get it. We've got it, Doc. <clears throat> and get a new copy, because I added some questions to the list of questions I'm going to read from now, okay? But I will also send you a, um, a copy. I'll send an attachment. I'll just resend it tonight when I get home, so you have these questions. <clears throat> so at, at the end of the notes, you'll have major questions, but I've added a couple that go to this problem, okay? And you'll see in a minute. Here are some questions I'd like you all to hold on to as you move through the book. Um, I've suggested that one of the most important ways in which we can see Ishmael is as Jonah. He's a Jonah figure. Um, we get the Jonah story from Father Mapple, but we also get a parallel in the scenes in which Ishmael is signing on board. If you remember, he's greeted by Peleg, and Peleg accuses him of being cheat. He said, because Ishmael says, I've been a merchant, I've never gone whaling, and Peleg starts accusing him, so why are you here? Are you going to cheat us? Those are exactly the same things that happened to Jonah. The, the ship questioned him, his motives, and um, then we don't think anything more of it. Um, Ish, or Melville's is going to write a couple of chapters late in the book that refer to Jonah, but that's it. And I've, I've been reluctant to give it away, but I'm going to give it away now. It's just unavoidable. The, sh the ship is going to go down at the end, in the very end. And the only survivor of the Pequod's the catastrophic sinking is Ishmael. That completes the Jonah story. So one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, you don't know the ending, but now you do if you didn't know it before. The question, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what does he come back to tell us? Now hold on, I really want, I really want, it, this is very much like Dante. He's told us a story. What else is there to tell? Hold on, everybody get this, this is so important. What else is there to tell? He's told us the story, he ends with the ship going down. He comes back to tell us. Remember, Jonah goes to the Ninevites. We're the Ninevites, we're the Americans. What does he come back to tell us? What more is there to tell? He doesn't have a postscript and says, this is my message. What we've got is the story. So the question for us, seriously, and you know, you know how seriously I take this stuff, what's there in the story? We're not just reading another story. This is a prophetic story, a piece of prophecy to us, to Americans, right? So if there's any meaning, any prophetic meaning to this, prophetic meaning, I'm saying that seriously, it's in the story. We've got to find it there or we won't find it. You, know, you already know, for me, most of the critics writing today will say, Moby Dick, 
inscrutable, confusing. You can't make it out. There's no mystery. There's no miracle. They deny what happens at the end. It's just this funny, tragic story about Ahab and Ishmael and a ship that in some puzzling way goes down. So everybody following. So these critics are saying nothing's there. This inscrutable story. That's what the editor of the Norton edition, which is probably the most prestigious edition collection, it's Moby Dick with all these critics writing, probably the most prestigious collection out on Moby Dick. And the editor of that writes an essay at the end and says it's inscrutable. So if this, if this is a Jonah story for us, which is what I'm suggesting we see it as, what is he what has he come back to tell us? Did something happen with his survival that partly shaped what he would do when he came back to tell it? Okay, that's first. Second, Ahab is a tragic figure. There's lots of critics who think this is a tragic story. It's not. It simply is not. It's, it's what Louise Cowan at UD would have called purgatorial comedy. The hero goes through um, a cleansing ordeal. It involves a lot of suffering, but it's comic. It's redemptive. It's reaffirming. The Ahab story is told through Ishmael's eyes. Its only existence is there. So the focus, the form of the story is not Ahab's. He's part of the story. He's the driving force in some way. But it's all captured in Ishmael's mind. And his spirit is fundamentally comic. He starts out with Ishmael or with Ahab's spirit. Remember when he we won't see it tonight, but next week we will. When Ahab calls all the people on board to join him in his quest to kill, to get back at that whale, Ishmael says, My voice was louder than anybody's. So he commits himself to this vengeance, vengeance quest. Is that the spirit that he brings back? When you read the beginning, is that what you hear? A man overcome by a vengeance quest? So Ahab's tragic, Ishmael's comic. Um, what's the underlying form of the story? I'm going to call it purgatorial comedy. It's cleansing. It belongs to comedy, not the world of tragedy. Um, and in that way, he's exactly with Dante, because remember when we finished Dante, it's called the divine comedy. Even though we go through hell, hell is an infernal comedy. It's not tragic. Dante knows that it's not. <laughs> the pagans didn't know any better, right? Christians do. If a guy goes to hell, it's not because he's being noble, which would have been the case in the pagan world. It's because he's being stupid. Yes? Yeah, yeah really. So the first part of the first third of the Divine Comedy is infernal comedy. Not tragic. And I'm going to go back to Dante again because it's going to be absolutely crucial to understand what's going on here. Does Ishmael change? Does Ahab? Does Ahab have a recognition? Because remember in all tragedy, um, the tragedy turns on a moment when the tragic hero sees something. Oedipus. If you go back to all the tragedies we've read. All tragedy has a turn, a peripatia, a turn, and there's a recognition at that moment. It's the same for all of us. We go through lives, I know this is true for all of us, 
we go through lives and we think everything's okay and suddenly it's like somebody knocks us over and we have to see everything I thought was a certain way is not that way and it asks that we learn to see ourselves more truthfully and make changes. Um, does Ahab have a moment like that? Does Ishmael? I've, you've already heard me ask. Ishmael has lots of them. He has one right in the beginning. When he starts off Moby Dick, he, he says, whenever I start feeling like I'm bringing up the end of funeral lines or I want to shoot somebody, I go to sea. He meets Queequeg and what happens that first, the, when he wakes up the next morning? My splintered heart began to soften. I could feel myself becoming fond of this man. The first peripatia occurs in the first couple of chapters. And, and it's, this is so, it's so important. It's with, a, it's with an unregenerate, unbaptized pagan, a barbarian. This man is teaching him to love. I mean, that's what will happen. And it is not, as Connie pointed out before, is not homosexual love. There's no question about this. It's just, um, okay, here. Two of the major changes in um, Reformation theology. Three, three major doctrines. I want to call into question here and I want to bring them to the surface because I'm not sure everybody would be aware of them. Um, but to me, they're absolutely essential for understanding what's going on in Moby Dick and how Moby Dick is different from the Divine Comedy. What happened to Dante at the beginning of the Divine Comedy? This is a quiz. Michelle, Connie, don't turn away either, you guys. This is a quiz. What happens at the beginning of the Divine Comedy when Dante starts to go up the mountain alone? Robert. Yeah, why? Uh, well, he was kind of lost in the middle of his life and he thought he saw what he was looking for, the sun at the top of the mountain, but he wasn't ready for heaven. Yeah, because we cannot do it alone. At the center, you'll, in a minute you'll see, at the center of the Protestant world is an exaltation of the human self. The private self, that's Luther and Calvin, but primarily Luther. It's an exaltation of the individual self. That cannot be, I'll get to it in a minute, that cannot be true for a Catholic. If we're made in the image of our God and God is Trinitarian, what does that say about our nature? Oh gosh. Yeah, more than one, communal. Yeah. At the center of our nature, we are communal. We're not meant to be alone. It's in our nature to be with somebody. Okay, is there a, Connie, you look like you're, do you have a question? Okay, three doctrines that came out of the Reformation. Um, flew right in the face of Catholic dogmas, doctrines the heart of our faith. One is the, what do you call it, the, what's the word, inefficacy of good works. One of them, man can do no good, none. They're ineffective for salvation. 
man, according to the Protestant world, man, one of the consequences of the fall was that man was completely corrupted. Milton said, all corrupt, all corrupt. We were depraved. That, that's why there's such a flood of horror movies in America. Probably 70% of the movies coming out of Hollywood are horror or vengeance, violent. The inefficacy of good works. We are essentially, we are essentially depraved. Depraved. There is no good in us without Christ's grace. Catholic believes we are not essentially depraved. We were wounded in the fall. Our essential goodness is intact. Can we get to heaven on the basis of that natural goodness? No. It's insufficient. We need grace. But not because we're depraved, it's because we're weakened. Um, our end is a divine order. It's beyond a human ability to get there because of our natural powers. We need divine help, so Christ came in. So everybody follow me. And I want anybody to stop me because we're going to basics. I'm, I'm holding on to what um, Leo Paul said. Do not overlook the obvious. These are all obvious things, but who thinks about them? Okay? So, um, the Protestant says we're depraved. The Catholic says, no, we're not. In essence, we're good. Read Genesis. First day, good. Second day, good. God looked at his creation, good. He made man. He looked at it and was pleased. It was good. We were wounded by the fall. The wound in the Catholic Church is called concupiscence. I really feel like we're doing a catechism class right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was like, um, in essence, we're good. So we can do good acts. By nature, we can perform good acts. Will they get us to heaven? No, they will not. Okay? Second doctrine, um, that faith was a matter of a private will, a private judgment. That's Luther. It's on the basis of that that he turned away from all the sacraments and the central importance of a priest. The sacraments, part of the, he got rid of some of the sacraments and eventually most of them would go. The sacramental life was gone. But what he did was exalt the private individual. So whatever the private individual wanted was his. Now look, if, if, if the private will is the, is the um, principal motive, condition of a person getting along and right. Who can argue with that person? Can he ever be wrong? If it's a private will, whatever he's going to do is going to be right. So the private will is going to tend towards an ex exaltation of the pride, a person's pride, and his self-centeredness. His self-centeredness. We're talking about America right now. I hope this is clear. I'm not, I'm talking about a book that's going to make this clear, but I want to get all this out. Um, Luther's position was, it was the private experience between a human being and God that w was most important. And that's why, he, well, that's why he changed transubstantiation to consubstantiation. For the Catholic, when the host is um, sanctified, it's objectively sanctified. That's the real presence of Christ, infinitely from his infinite bountifulness. Yeah. Luther said, no, it's only when the person consumes it by an act of faith that it turns into the real presence. 
So whatever's left in the bowl afterwards can be thrown away. That's Luther. It's the act of faith that makes it so. The Catholic Church says no, it's objectively so. Whether the person the person's got to believe it, but it's objectively so. The question is, does he have faith to believe it? If he does, he'll receive it. Is that clear? So the exaltation of the private will, so that the private will becomes an arbiter in all things. What's the one of the results of that? The constant fragmentation of the Protestant church. Because one person will think this is what's right, another this is what's right, another this is what's right. Who can argue with them? If the private will is arbiter, it's absolute, what objective appeal can you make? What objective reality, what ground can you turn to to disagree with that person? The effect of that is to isolate the human being. What do we have in the chapel? Isolados. When they board ship and we get the description in the Knights chapter, it's we've got the three mates and the three harpooners and all these other men are called isolados. That's Melville's name. They're all isolated, one from another. So that's the condition which we're looking at. What was the third dogma? Predestination. Okay, from Calvin. We already, you've heard me express my trouble with that. But here's, here's, here's what I want to get to for just a moment here. You remember an ancient tragedy, Greek tragedy, for Aristotle. The form of Greek tra tragedy was a beginning, a complication, um, a crisis, a denouement, a resolution. That's the action. Because Aristotle, excuse me, believed that the return to some res answering the evils and returning the characters to um, a relative um, normalcy or, or equilibrium, whatever you want to call it, in the middle of that was a turn, a peripatia, and a recognition. Okay? But in the process of that recognition, Aristotle said what happens in the turn is that there's a purging of the two tragic emotions. The two tragic emotions. And they are, they are we've gone over this more times than I can count, they are the enabling emotions. They, they rack families. They're, they're taking hold of families, can, can keep them in a grip of a cycle. What are those two emotions? Fear and pity. The whole point of tragedy is to get us past this point of dealing with problems, to turn. And in that turn, there's a purging of those two emotions. The, the, one of the interesting things about that is that pity looks like love. Is it love? No, it's not. In pity, when one person pities another, he's, he's identifying hims, himself with another and suffering in him. He identifies himself with that suffering, so he feels sorry for that person. Okay? Love means you do something for the good of that person. Pity can, pity can overwhelm you and keep you from doing that. You feel so sorry. Sometimes you feel so sorry you don't want to do a hard thing when that's what that person needs. All alcoholic, all drug rehab programs rest on that principle. I hope I'm not going too far or assuming too much here. No? Yeah? Is everybody following? Um, they're natural emotions. Fear is natural. Without it, we'd be stupid. 
Um, you, you want a child to be afraid when he goes in the street. And you want to feel sorry when somebody does something that's painful. But you can get arrested in that pity because you identify so much with it. You're, the suffering that you feel makes you identify with the suffering that other, and you get caught. So in the tragic action, the action involved a purging, a catharsis, so that the minds would be clarified and the equilibrium would be restored. It's I think it's absolutely essential that we have a tragic view of life, even, even if comedy's higher. And I, I think America's lost it. I mean, we live on silly stuff most of the time, but why is this important? By isolating the individual as Luther does, he isolates him and makes him susceptible not just to pride, but to, but to self-pity. If you're alone in the world, if that's your religious belief, and you're alone in the world, and you believe the world has fallen because the Protestant world does, what's the most natural feeling you're going to have? Self-pity. What is it that moves everybody into Ahab's quest? They all feel victims. They want to get back. What's the overriding motive in 90% of the movies coming out of Hollywood? Vengeance. Getting back. It's, ne it's almost never justice. It's almost never justice. It's vengeance. Is everybody following? So some of the consequences of those doctrines are Luther's pity. I'm alone. The world is against me. Put that next to Dante. Dante, at the beginning of the Commedia, is saying, when Dante tries to do that alone, his pride will get in the way. Who, what happens? Virgil comes to help him, and then finally Beatrice. And finally Beatrice turns him over to Bernard at the end. He's never without help, ever. So when Melville presents Moby Dick, in one sense he's, he's um, displaying a Protestant world in crisis. Is Mrs. Hussey, Peleg Bildad, Mapple, um, who's the owner of the Sprouter Inn? Um, Mr. Cockcock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, sorry. Is everybody following? When we look, I mean, they're all funny. But there's something wrong with it. Coffin doesn't acknowledge um, Lazarus in the gutter. Mrs. Hussey cares more about her door than Queequeg. He's a savage. When in the wheelbarrow scene, when um, Queequeg um, goes to the wharf, remember, and that kid is making fun of him, he tosses up there and paddles him. He lost his anger, <laughs> like you would in a car, you know, whatever. Spanks him, but he keeps his cool. Everybody gets mad. The kid says, the devil, the devil. Okay, so we're watching a Christian world closed in on itself, un unable to love, and this is one of the major, the other, the cannibal, Queequeg, tattoos all over his body, a tomahawk. Everything, everything about him expresses barbarism, savagery. And he's the one who quiets Ishmael's heart. So, what are we learning about our faith from reading Moby Dick? Because what Ishmael is doing, what Melville is doing, is showing America in the New England world 
in a crisis mid-19th century. So all the original doctrines, the, the, how to put this, the spirit of them still holds on. But belief in those dogmas are in trouble. If you ask most people today, very few of them are gonna know, even know what Luther's dogmas were or Calvin's, but they'll still be Presbyterians, Calvinist or Lutheran or, okay. What do we learn about the role of faith in it from Moby Dick? As a culture, for us as Americans, and what do we learn about ourselves as individuals from reading this work, okay? So those are some of the questions I just want everybody to keep in mind as you read. I'll send out a, remember I told you I didn't have some of those in the last copy I gave, but I corrected them, and I'll, I'll, I'll send you an attachment tonight when I get home, okay? Let me stop. I want to I do a quick review of some of the things we did last week. Um, to, to just cover some of the essential points and then I want to get to the book directly so we can start reading through it. Any questions though about what I just covered and, and why it's important and how it's important? Um, one, I'll give this away because I just one of the, and you guys have done Dante, I'm so glad that we were able to do that together. You remember that Dante set out alone and he was beaten, but he could not overcome those three beasts. Who are those three beasts? <laughs> this is the dog again. It's the animal in him. The leopard, the lion, the she-wolf. He's got to learn to discipline those. You can say that the journey in, for Dante is a, is a journey in self-discipline. He's got to learn to see the world and discipline himself accordingly. Because there was an order to the world. You can refer to it. Is there in the modern world? I'll come back to it because that's where we... That's where we were last week. So if you compare Dante to Melville, you see what's happened, really. And the interesting thing is, Dante has help all the way to see God. Melville's not going to take us to God. But interestingly, through Ishmael, he's going to restore the natural order that was taken away with all the changes in the 17th, 18th century. Is everybody following that? The Catholic begins with a natural order. That's where we start. God took on our nature. The natural order is good. It's fallen. He came to redeem us. Protestant said, depraved. We say, it's not. It's good. The Protestant world took it away. What's Ishmael going to do? I mean, one of the reasons for, I'm assuming, that, you know, when you read all these chapters about a skeleton, paintings, books, masthead, you know, whatever he's writing about. He's teaching us to see that there's meaning in everything in the world, that the world is good. He's teaching us to read being, the being of things. So unlike Dante, he's answering a world that has turned away from it, and interestingly, what he's doing is restoring us to that world, to learn to see that there's something there for which we should be grateful and glad. The world is full of meaning. Where's Mary? Stones speak. Do you remember departures? Is everybody okay? So let me stop. Any questions about what I'm saying? Is that all clear? What? Did you have a question? No. Bob, you spoke. Yeah. Of, uh, you spoke of Moby Dick as a particular kind of comedy, and I didn't hear the word you used. Purgatorial. Purgatorial, 
I mean, it involves a suffering. We don't escape suffering, just like the tragic hero. But it doesn't end us. There's a grace offered through the suffering. Um, Christ is behind it now, so... Quick, quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just have a little bit of trouble with the word surrender um, because I, I'm not, I can't recall passages in which Melva uses that word. But I don't think of it as a, as, a, as a weak term, just like certain words have a weak connotation to it versus something that you can make something strong out of. That's how I see it. Yeah. I, I just want to be, I'm trying to be really careful here. Um, but what I do see happening in him is that he's letting go of the vengeance quest and learning to be open to um, receive. Um, and and um, <coughs> surrender means giving up. I'm trying to find another word that um, he's learning to be open to trust, to see a goodness. He'll learn to love. We're going to see lots of peripeties. There are going to be lots of turns. Some of them are really funny, but but yeah, he's yes, he's learning to be open. He's seeing that there's something there. There's more than just this malice behind the world. That this is the case for Ahab. Let me go. Let me start because I really want to get to the book and read. So all of you um, are hearing Ishmael's voice instead of my own. A couple of important principles that I laid out. I just want to quickly review. Remember that in America there were two foundings, a northern founding and a southern. The northern was religious, fundamentally religious. These people gave up their lives. That's how heroic they were for Christ. They came to found a new city based on faith. So it was principally a religious founding in character and in spirit. The South was commercial. It came to make money. It was a plantation founding. I think 1918, no, 16, sorry, 1620s, 1606, I think was Jamestown. So very, too different. And it's interesting that the, um, even though the Northern founding was religious, it tends to isolate the individual. It's highly individualistic, as we're, gonna, as we're seeing, for those of you who are reading it. The South is communal. People had to learn to work together. 
And I think because there was a slave society, even, even if it was not good at the time, there was a dependence between two orders. So at its very root, at, its, at, the, at the core of its being, that founding ended up being far more social. If you look at the, after the Civil War, when the South loses the war, it, the South undergoes another crisis. And it produces this great body of writers. You can't find anything like that going on in the, in the North. Nowhere. You'll get isolated writers in the North. You've got, I can't go through, Faulkner, Tate, Robert Penn Warren, John Crow Ransom, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor. You can go on and on and on. And it, it, it's an illustration of the point that I made last week. Whenever a culture reaches its maturity um, and it approaches its decline or its loss, memoria clicks in, memory. When we're about to lose those things we love, it's a, it's a cast back holding back in memory. We want, we, want, we want not to lose them. So all of the amazing writing that came out of the South came out of the South because of it, its communal attachment to the land. When we get to Faulkner, you're gonna see that's, that's the great gift of the South, it's also its, it's great wrong. But it's interesting to see how polar those two regions are, north and south. The north is industrial, south is plantation. Um, remember that our beginnings um, were from Abraham. Abraham was called out and at, at one point, remember we went over this because I don't want to read it tonight. Remember he was, um, um, God, correct me if I'm, God came to Sarah and said she was going to have a child and she laughed at God. <laughs> she laughed at God because she was too old. And she gives permission for Abraham to um, mate with um, Hagar. And Hagar conceives a child. And Hagar um, 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 humiliates Sarah because she's got the child and Sarah didn't. And Sarah becomes so angry she cast her out and God goes and tells her go back and s submit submit but hold on but the, this is scripture so this is God's prophecy not what I'm calling natural prophecy and in, um, in the way in which I'm using Melville this is in Genesis 16 God tells her return submit to her and says, I will so greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hands against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Why did... Melville choose Ishmael as his character. So in Melville's mind and in the mind of Americans, the, um, America was a result of the chosen one. The Protestant race is the chosen one. It's descended from Ike. The Catholic race, the Catholic religion, was the Antichrist. They left it behind. They went to America because they thought the Reformation was incomplete they had to complete it. They were the chosen ones. 
Melville's choosing Ishmael. This man's not named, it's, he says, call me Ishmael. That's not his name. Um, because he's identifying himself as an outcast. He's not among the chosen. So the opening lines give away the critique. There's something wrong with this Christian world. It's in a crisis. Ishmael is going to be the one to bring them out. Or he's going to bring something back to teach us. Okay? So there are the two lines. And I've told you before, it's really interesting because Faulkner will write, go down Moses, and the central character of that collection of stories will be Ike, Isaac. So between Melville and Faulkner, we've got the two lines coming from Abraham. Okay? So um, you can see that on, the, on, the, on my notes. This epic is like all the other epics. It has an eschatological aspect to it. It's one of the defining characteristics of the epic. It looks at final things, last ends. The gods were involved in all the ancient epics. They were involved in Dante. Dante's going to God. The novel is not, typically, is non-eschatological. It has to do with this world. It's empirical with the things we can feel and touch. It's rare for a, a writer, a novelist, to deal with final things, eschatological things, final ends. Sin, death, damnation. That's why novels tend to become formulaic. You know that. You get into movies and you watch series and they're just repeating the same thing again and again and again and again. They're not dealing with harder things. Melville is. Melville's dealing with much tougher things, okay? Um, <clears throat> some of the things to keep in mind, one of the things that we learned from Melville's presentation of this Protestant world, the Protestant world turned away from the sacraments. They rejected them. What happens to Christianity when you reject the sacraments? Your faith turns into a moral code. What becomes defining of your faith then is respectability. The sacraments are gone. Take away the sacraments. People are leaving the Catholic Church today. If they're leaving, why not go to a Protestant church? Still believe in God. I mean, I'm saying this because you know there are lots of people leaving the Catholic Church today. The numbers are rising, or have risen, I don't know where they are today. But if you turn away from the sacraments, you can go to the, Catholic, or the Protestant Church. And if you can go to the Protestant Church, you don't even need a church because you worship God any way you want. So what we're seeing is what happens to a world, does Melville believe this? I don't think for a minute. I don't think he can go to Catholicism, even though everything about him is... It'll be interesting to see what you guys think at the end. Everything about him is going that direction, but the Protestant world at his time is the Antichrist. If you give up the sacramental life, your faith becomes a moral code. You live by these things. That's what we're seeing in New England. A sense of the miraculous or the sacramental doesn't exist. Um... Okay, I want to um, I want to stop here. Remember, one of the most important things that I tried to emphasize last week, and I want to emphasize it again here. Whenever Alan Tate, um, whenever a society reaches its maturity, 
or a change takes place that will question its fundamental way of living, it's always a time of crisis. Now stop and think about this just for a second. When you've lived according to a certain system of beliefs and suddenly that comes into question, I'm so serious about this right now, how do you live? What do you do? And how can you find words to express what you don't even understand? I hope I'm clear on this because it's a point of crisis. You're in the dark, you're confused, probably frightened, despairing. When a culture reaches a moment like that, it begins to question its foundations. Whenever that happens, there are some people who, who are so sensitive to that change that they go to the metaphysical roots. They question everything. Shakespeare, the Renaissance, Melville, Hawthorne, Faulkner in our time, I'm going to say that at every one of those periods you find a poet struggling at a time when we have to find words to express what we feel and don't have words for. That's why we turn to poetry. So, from, you know my, so we go to poetry because it's fluffy stuff or escape stuff? For a lot of poets, yes. But for the poets we've been reading, absolutely not. These people are helping us to feel things. They give words to things to make us it make it possible for us to name those things inside of us that we can't, to understand them, to see them. So, when those moments occur in history, Homer, Greece, Pericles, Greece, Rome, the Middle Ages, um, America in the Revolution, and I, and I argued, you know that I did last night, I think we're in the middle of that kind of crisis now. When we reach, a, so in the, in, the, in the Reformation it was, man's depraved. America grew up Protestant. The, the way that they saw the world through that lens was that man was depraved. That's the way they saw it. So when they look at Quiquick, he's a barbarian. He's the devil. That's the way they saw him. Um, in our time, I. I told you with some fear last time, I became aware of this woman who wrote this book called um, How We Became Post-Human. That we're already an AI, an artificial intelligence, believing we can construct a superior human by combining human things, or machine things with human cells. Through, what do you call it, genetic engineering, we can, it's beginning with enhancement, you know, we can do some, but all the, what's born, name some others, trans, I mean, Transformer, all those movies, if you've watched the Born series, are, are all dealing with man in this predicament where his whole world is unraveling, he can't orient himself, he's got to find out who he is. So we're in that world today, that's Melville's world. So I want to underscore that. So in those moments, it's like the darkness comes over you. You don't know who you are anymore, what you are, what a human being is. You've lost your bearings. You can't find words to describe what's coming. Very often, it's, it's gifted men and women who stand on that threshold. We call them poets. There are bad poets, but there are also these tremendously gifted people who help us to see something that we feel but can't deal with. So that's why we've got Homer, Shakespeare, Dante. Right now we're doing Melville. Um, 
Olivia, sorry, did you, did you have something? Sorry. No, it's fine. Come on. No, you, you explain what I was thinking. Okay. Is everybody okay? So Moby Dick is not just a novel. It's an epic, it's a novel. It's speaking to us about a change that was taking place after the Reformation, where the Reformation theology is at a point of crisis. And it's led us to today. And one of the most remarkable things about that, you know that I've said is, at that point, something radical happens that changes our view of man as he relates to nature. Up until that time, every hero in every novel, in every epic, um, the nemesis was another person. Hector, the suitors, right, you can go down the list. Um, Jane Austen, Elizabeth, it was Darcy, or Wickham, if you know Jane Austen's world, or Dickens, pick a Dickens character, it doesn't matter. But in Melville, something happens, because the Reformation changed all that. One of the doctrines was man's predestined to salvation or damnation. He has no free will, that's Calvin. He's predestined, can't escape it, it's done. So there's this evil inherent in nature. If some men are inherently evil and God made the soul, this is, I mean, I don't hear Calvinists doing this, but I'm doing it here. If some men are predestined to damnation and they're inherently evil and God made the human soul, where did that evil come from? Okay? So our whole view our whole way of looking at man and nature radically changed. And Melville is dealing with it. With Ahab, that's his tragic figure, and Ahab, or I mean Ishmael, who's coming along with his quest, who will show us another way of seeing things. Okay? So those are my opening review. I mean, I want to turn to, but any... Let me stop for a minute, because I feel like it's one of those fire hydrant moments for you guys. <laughs> any, any questions? I must be doing something wrong here. Come on, you guys. Connie, you got a question? No. I don't. No? Yeah, yeah. I do. I, I'm just curious as to why the Protestant world assumes that they're the chosen line from Isaac rather than the Catholics. How did they divorce us from Isaac? Because I always thought that we would be more aligned with Isaac because it was... Of course, because we, we believe we're the true church. Yes. The whole Reformation said you're not, you're corrupt, you're depraved, you're, um, what's the, the, what's the devil? They call us the, the uh, harlot of... Uh, no, what are we called? The... Uh, Hmm? Antichrist. And thanks, Connie. We're the Antichrist. So of course we don't come from that line. We broke it. So the understanding of the I mean this is real. This you know that they had these religious wars in Europe in England. They so the belief was or Catholics were corrupt, depraved, that they had lost the real church, and that the Protestant Reformation was an attempt to recover what Christianity lost. So they're the ones who are continuing the line from Abraham to Isaac. But here, the opening lines are, call me Ishmael. Um, and by the way, this is a really interesting fact. If, if there's a wonderful book called Sword and Scimitar that describes the major, eight major battles during the Middle Ages 
involving um, Islam and its march across Europe. I mean, it just destroyed town after town after town. It, its object was to get rid of Christianity, the, the infidels. It had, it had almost taken over Europe for 10 centuries. Um, it's nothing but battles. And, and Melville is, I mean, those battles are quieted now by the time he's writing, but Melville's taking Ishmael as his character, the outcast one. Because the chosen people have shown, in his mind, they're not chosen. Is that clear? Michelle. I'm we're living in a Protestant world right now. I'm just like, it's just so sad. Yeah, what's interesting is, I don't want to go there, but <laughs> if, 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 you, if you look at the beginnings, our beginnings are utopian. If you look at the divisions in America, far left and far right, the far left could not be more utopian than it is. America's a utopian world. I mean, we're still struggling with the same tensions that founded us. They're still with us. They define us as a country. We are a violent, violent country. It's all undercover, but we are a violent country. I don't want to disillusion you many here, but we have an incredible subculture we always have had yeah it's interesting when you go to Europe when you travel and you check out a hotel in Europe and everybody's dressed up and they're, they're civil and, and it's really like a civil society and you come to America and it's just there's a huge subculture yeah and, it, and it's been building for years and we've facilitated it as you say with our utopian policy when people come in it's it I, I, I just I don't want to take when people come here, I think they find Americans welcoming and, you know, you tend to find that almost in any country when you go on, but when you look at roots and, and um, what's going on in the dynamics politically, and you, in, whether it's in Europe or Germany or Italy, it, you, you see another side to a country. Yeah. Let, me, let me go on. Let's, let's get back. Can I have one more thing? Yeah. Well, you were yeah. How the things change, and you don't know where you're stopping. So when Christ came, that was what happened. Boy, yeah. I never thought it that way. Yeah. Radically, for God to come into the world, and then say we in that pass. I'm just floored by it in that passage where he's dealing with the religious leaders in Matthew that we read, and it's in chapter 23, where he's going, whoa, 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 whoa. You say you know the law. Remember there were those five exchanges in Matthew. He had five exchanges with the religious leaders and um, they couldn't answer his questions again and again and again and finally says whoa 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 you say you know the law you don't know the law you don't know God how radical can you get because um, they would have claimed at that time we define our lives by the law by God so it can't be more I mean that's the ultimate that's the ultimate reality so yeah Yep, 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 yep. Okay. Um, I want to just pick out a couple of passages and then I want to go through in order. Um, um, 
a couple of things to keep in mind when we look at the Protestant world that's, that's the culture in which this action takes place. Good chapters. I'm just, I, by the way, I, I, if, just write it down if you can't follow me because we don't, we don't all have the same book and I, I don't want to take the time. I want to just skim through this. Um, In chapter 6, called The Street, a couple of pages in, Mel, or Ishmael is describing the town and he says, 64 in my text, 6, but think not that this famous town has not only harpooners, cannibals, bumpkins to show her vision, not at all. Still New Bedford is a queer place. Had it not been for us whalemen, that tract of land would this day perhaps have been in a howling condition, the coast of Labrador. As it is, parts of her back country are enough to frighten one, they look so bony. The town itself is perhaps the dearest place to live in in all New England. It's the land of oil, true enough, because they get all the oil from Wales, um, but not like Canaan. Um, it's not like the promised land. A land also of corn and wine goes on like that. Um, um, chapter 82, page 425. Um, Late in the book, Ishmael is talking about the honor and glory of whaling, and he's comparing whalers to the great heroes of the epic past, Perseus and um, men like that. He says in chapter 82, the gallant Perseus, the son of Jupiter, was the first whaleman, and to the eternal honor of our calling, be it said that the first whale attacked by our brothers was not killed with any sordid intent. Those were the nightly days of our profession when we only bore arms to succor the distressed, not to fill men's lamp feelers. So the whole commercial enterprise has one aim. It's to get oil to fill lamps, but to do that they have to kill, they have to ravage nature, okay? And remember those, um, um, I think it's 16. Remember the passage we looked at um, last time um, hold on, sorry. Yeah, um, this is in chapter six the sh or sixteen, the ship. It's several pages in sixteen, page one ten on my book. Now, builded like Peleg and indeed many other Nantuckers, was a Quaker the island having been originally settled by that sect, and to this day its inhabitants in general retain, retain an uncommon measure the peculiarities of the Quaker, only variously and anomalously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary, that is given to angry, anger, all, of all the sailors and whale hunters, they're the most given to a quick temper, they are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. And remember on the, on the next page, in the middle of the page, um, same chapter, he's describing Bildad and says, the refusing from conscientious scruples to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had been limitedly in, invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a swore foam to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of Leviathan gore. 
How now in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence. I do not know, but it did not seem to concern him much and very probably had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing and this practical world quite another. Now you remember last time we looked at um, Ishmael signing on. And what happened in that sign-on was exactly what happened with Jonah. When he meets Bildad, Bildad is reading from scripture and he's reading that passage that says, lay not up your treasures. Peleg turns to him and says, what's his lay? And Bildad's first response is, seven hundredth lay, which is nothing. They're going to cheat him. And they finally settle on 300. But um, So hold those images in mind. Um, when they were so interested in whether he had been baptized until they saw what he could do. Sorry? Yes. Then once they saw what, what he, could, he right. could do, it didn't matter. So yeah. that he wasn't <laughs> and you're already getting ahead of me. Oh, sorry. No, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry. I'm glad you know. That's. I'm going to read that because I... No, but Ishmael's speech was beautiful. Yeah. He's, yeah. Are yeah. we all children of the one God? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, on, on 10... Remember that um, Ishmael has already seen Queequeg whittling his idol. Um, on, on, in chapter 10, a couple of pages in, he watches him do performing all of his rituals, and then he says, remember, I, I'm, I'm going to read it in a minute because I want to I get to Ishmael and Queequeg both in a second, but um, he watches him do this, and um, Ishmael warms up to him, and or I mean Kweku went to Ishmael and then Ishmael says, as I sat there now in a lonely room the fire burning, the fire burning low, in that mild stage when after its first intensity has warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at, the evening shades and phantoms gathering round the casements and peering in upon a silent solitary twain, the two together, the storm booming without in solemn swells, I began to be sensible of strange feelings, I felt, a I felt a melting in me, no more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world, this soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifferent speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceit. Because all of the Christians dress up, they're dignified, they're respectable, but underneath. So this cannibal is touching Ishmael's heart in a way, in, in a way others don't. Um, now you know that that um, Quick, Quick, um is or Ishmael is cheated when um, when the Ramadan takes place. Remember at Mrs. Hussey's, Quiqueg is in worshiping his idol, and they have to break down the door. But at the beginning of that chapter. Ishmael leads into it saying, I say we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagans, and whatnot because of their half-crazy conceits on these subjects. There was Queequeg now certainly entertaining the most absurd notions about Yoho and his Ramadan. But what of that? Queequeg thought he knew what he was about, I suppose. He seemed to be content. And there let him rest. All our arguing with him would not avail. Let him be, I say. Remember, he's writing past tense. He's looking back. Queequeg is dead now. I mean, he's already passed. But here, he's recalling that moment when he was doing the Ramadan and Mrs. Hussey got so worked up about her door. 
I say, and heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly needing mending. One of the things that both Melville and Hawthorne felt strongly about and why they did not like the transcendentalists, Emerson and the rest, is because of what they called the brotherhood of sin. I, and it's one of the concerns I have about Father Mapple because when Father Mapple's going, whoa, 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 it's a, a real question for me how much he identifies with others because of his own sinfulness. He clearly is aware of his sin. Um, but there, he brings a spirit that's so self-righteous, you know, and pointing a finger at others. Um, so we're getting Ishmael describing his feelings as he warms to Queequeg, this pagan. He doesn't have on nice clothes. He's covered with tattoos. He's got, he walks around with a, a tomahawk. Um, um, but he's, he's softening his life. Um, Is he really a cannibal? <laughs> Yeah. Um, in chapter 18, um, Ishmael goes to the two captains to see if Queequeg can go along, and they talk about him. And um, Peleg asks him, What do we know about this guy? Chapter 18, first page. Why, well, said I, he's a member of the First Congregational Church. Here be it said that many. Tattooed savages sailing in Tucket sh ships at last come to be converted into the churches. Just a natural process. First Congregational Church, cried Bill Dead. What? That worships in Deacon Deuteronomy's Coleman's meeting house? <laughs> so he believes that. How long has he been a member? He said. He then said, turning to me, Not very long, I rather guess, young man. No, said Peleg. He hasn't been baptized right either. It would have been washed some of that devil's blue off his face. <laughs> Um, go down a few lines. Finding myself thus hard pushed, I replied, I mean, sir, the same ancient Catholic church to which you and I, Captain Peleg here, and Queequeg here, and all of us, and every mother's son and soul of us belong. Joyce's description of the Catholic church, Joyce was Irish and he grew up Catholic, um, was his description of the Catholic church is, here comes everybody. <laughs> um, so they get him to sign, but... Um, Um, but they're still not quite sure. Um, Peleg is questioning whether they should let him come aboard, but he says, come aboard, come aboard, never mind about the papers. I say, tell Quahog there. Think about that. Would he have done that with a respectable Christian? Yeah. No. I mean, they, they just dismiss him. He's a Campbell. So, all manners fall away. Quahog there, what's, um, what's that you call him? Tell Quahog or step along. By the great anchor, what, what a harpoon he's got there. Looks like a good stuff that. And he handles it about right. I say, Quahog or whatever your name is, did you ever stand in the head of a whaleboat? Did you ever strike a fish? Without saying a word, Quick gets up. He says, Captain, you see that small drop tar on water there? You see that whale? Suppose him one whale, eh? Well then, and taking sharp aim at it, he darted the iron right over Bildad's brow, broad brim, clean across the sharp uh, ship's decks, struck the glistening tar spot out of sight. Now said Queequeg, quietly hauling in the line, Sposey him whaley, aye, why, that whale dead. Quick, Bildad, said Pildug, or Peleg, 
his partner who aghast at the clothes vicinity of because it just went by his head. Quick, I say, you build that. Get the ship's papers. We must have hedgehog there. I mean Queequagger. <laughs> Are you all seeing the satire? And the pointed ironies at the Christians here. Okay. One more, and then on the Merry Christmas, this has to be one of the most profound ironies of the whole entire book, and you could miss it. What's the date on which they start their journey? The date on which Christ was born. They're ready to go out to sea, and the business Cap Bildad and the others are trusting their venture. They're, they're making a risk at the very end of that chapter in the last couple of pages. But at last he turned to his comrade with a final sort of look about him. Captain Bildad, come old ship mate, we must go. Back the main yard, there, boat ahoy, stand to come close alongside now. Careful, careful, come Bildad. Boy, say your last, lucky, Starbeck. Luck to ye, Mr. Stubb, luck to ye, Mr. Flask, goodbye and good luck to ye all. And this day three years I'll have a hot supper. Gone for three years and he's going to treat them to a supper. <laughs> Very generous man. God bless ye and have ye in his holy keeping, men murmured old Bildad almost incoherently. I hope ye have fine weather now so that Captain Ahab may soon be moving among ye a pleasant sun. Go down. Don't, sta don't stave the boats needlessly, ye harpooners. Good white cedar plank is raised full 3% within the year. Don't think so. He can't look at it without thinking what the cost is. It's like hussy with her door. Don't forget your prayers either, Mr. Stubbuck. Mind that copper. Don't waste the spare staves. Oh, the sail needles are in the green locker. Don't wail it too much. Allured days, men. Don't miss a fair chance either that's rejecting heaven's good gifts. Have an eye to the molasses terse. Mr. Stubb, it was a little leaky, I thought. If you touch the islands, Mr. Flask, beware of fornication. <laughs> goodbye, goodbye, don't keep that cheese too long down in the hold, Mr. Starbuck, it'll spoil. Be careful with the butter, 20 cents the pound it was. Is everybody seen? Yes. I, I, I don't know, I've got to lean on Father James because he, he, he's pretty consistent in talking about the gospel of prosperity in our world. Here are its roots. Um, okay, let me um, um, quickly. Um, when they set out, chapter 23, when they set out just after the Christmas, when on that shivering winter's night the Pequog thrust her vindictive bows into the school malicious waves, who should I see? The waves are malicious, nature's not a friend, and the boat is vindictive. I'm just underlining things, just to sort of highlight a thread that will run through the whole boat, just to, to um, point them out so that we don't miss them. Um, let me stop for a minute. Any questions in this? I want to look at Queequeg and um, Ishmael a little bit more closely now, but any, any questions about this Christian culture, how aware it is of itself, how reflective of itself it is? Um, the ironies, the satire that's going on here. And here, just, what's the, here, if I, wait, here, this is good, here. Remember Father Mapple? I'm, I wish Alexis were here, I really wish she were here. Um, Father Mapple, and her point was well taken, Father Mapple is genuine, he's absolutely sincere. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, okay. And I was suggesting that it's important to see that I think there's something to 
um, there are too many invectives. He's, his spirit is not charitable, if I can just put it simply. It, we're getting Ishmael's story. Remember the question I asked her, what does he come to tell us? Father Mapple is a Jonah figure. He identifies with him. In the sermon, he makes it clear he was Jonah. He came back, and now he's come back to tell these people. What's the difference between Father Mapple and Ishmael in the way they're dealing with men? What's Ishmael's spirit? Yeah, I mean, he start, I, I love that first scene when Quig Quig crawls into bed with him and <laughs> Ishmael lets out this shriek and Coffin comes in and laughs. And immediately they become fond of each other. They have, he said he slept well and he wakes up in the morning and he finds Quig Quig's arm on him and, he, and Quig, Quig, um, Quig Quig gets up, he divides his money. He gives Ishmael half of his money and says they're married. So um, Ishmael is making his peace with the other, the other, you know, the, the, the cannibal, the unbaptized, the unregenerate. There's a profound sense of charity and growing in him because he's seeing there's something good. So Quigley is not somebody inherently evil or depraved. There's a natural goodness in him that Ishmael can love. It's the youngness in him also. So it's the youngness in him growing through all these other characters. Ishmael. Yes. Yeah. Where the yes. preacher, he's already went through that. He's a little bitter himself and angry. <laughs> a little. So, so right. Ishmael is picking this up, and that's the big difference between the two. Yeah. That he's going through because he's going through and learning and willing to be open. Yep. And remember, just to just to hold on. Remember when Ahab comes out, and that's where we'll start next week, by the way. We'll come, I want to get up to that. But um, when Ahab comes out and calls everybody in his quest, Ishmael is the quickest to join and the loudest. So even though he's young, there's, there's a bitterness, a, a disillusionment. It begins when he says, when I find myself bringing up funeral lines and ready to shoot somebody. And so there's a dark side to him. But when he meets Queequeg, I mean, in that passage that I read, he, he can feel his heart softening. He's something's, he's aware that there is this natural goodness in somebody who most of the people see as depraved, the devil. Okay. Um, I want to go, I just want to, Chapter 1, Loomings. The first chapter tells us a lot about Ishmael. It begins, call me Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long, precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little to see the watery part of the world. It is the way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulate. It's interesting to note that at the beginning, it has nothing to do with spiritual realities or faith. It has to do with an upset stomach or spleen or you know, circulation. Or Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it's a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses, bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, 
especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off them, then I count it high time to get to see as soon as I can. This is my substitution for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself on his sword. I quietly take the ship. Um, it, it, he, what follows is his sort of meditation on um, the importance of water. He describes everybody being drawn to the sea because the, the sea, I've suggested, is an image of what's indefinite, what can't be bound. Um, it's, it's as if it, it captures some longingness. Here, the, that at home sometimes we get too homebound. I live in a cave and I'm fine there, but, um, but you know, we can get homebound and sometimes it's good to get out. Um, because there's a reality going on around us and it's good to go out there. The sea in one sense is an image of that enlarged, okay? So he, he describes all of the people magnetically being drawn to the seaport and this longing that all human beings have. Um, in on page 33, still in the first chapter, looming, what of it, if some old hunks or sea captain orders me? So he's saying, so if I go to sea and I'm bossed around, so what? Now compare this to Ahab, okay? So some old hulk um, tells me to scrub the decks. What does that indignity amount to? Weight, I mean, on the scales of the New Testament. Now how, how, how charitably would any of these men that we've looked at so far have responded if some guy said, go scrub the decks? Because they're very proud men, these people. They're very, they're very caught in themselves as individuals. What does that indignity amount to weight, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? Do you think the archangel Gabriel thinks anything the less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hoax in a particular instance? Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right that everybody else in one way or another served in much the same way either in a physical or metaphysical point of view. That is, and so the universal thump is passed round and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. How much is our pride, I can, I, you don't want to hear me confess on this because it take the rest of the night, how much does our pride get in the way when somebody does something to us we don't like? But Ishmael is saying, what's the big deal? All of us get it. So the universal thump is passed around and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Contrast that with Ahab. Or remember when um, Stubb first meets Ahab, he goes on deck and he says, can you put some gum on that toe because the, you know, the, 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 his walking around the deck and the thunking is keeping him from sleeping. Imagine saying that to Ahab, who's on a vengeance quest. Ahab blows up and Stubb is ready to fight him and Ahab goes right at him. And it shows, it's an interesting revelation about the mates because Stubb is tough-minded, but once Ahab shows his anger and starts to go at him, Stubb, Stubb turns with his tail between and goes away. One of the questions that we're going to be looking at here is Starbuck, Stubb, Flask, well-educated, all white, educated, they, they stand above the isolados, the ship's crew, the harpooners, Queequeg, native islander, 
Tashtigo, um, Dagu, are all native from somewhere. How well do they confront spiritual evil when they have to confront Ahab? Every one of them showed how brave he is dealing with temporal, worldly dangers. Is everybody following? But what happens to all of them when they have to deal with spiritual evil? That is, now they'll show us how well do people who are educated, who are, who are brave, courageous, prudent, know how to do something effectively, how well do they do when they're confronting actual spiritual evil? So here at the beginning, Ishmael is saying, this, he's talking about this universal thump, and you know the, um, the passage that I've already read about being a Presbyterian, and there's that one passage in the, uh, um, gosh, um, 17, chapter 17. Sorry, 10 or 17s, where he talks about himself as a Presbyterian, a good Presbyterian. But um, on, in chapter 10 on page 86, Ishmael says, I was a good Christian born and bred in the bosom of the um, infall infallible Presbyterian church. How then could I unite with this wild idolater and worship in his piece of wood? But what is worship, thought I? Do you suppose now, Ishmael, that the magnanimous God of heaven and earth, pagans and all included, can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood? Impossible. But what is worship? To do the will of God. That is worship. Remember all the passages that we hear in, in um, readings, Old Testament, New, um, where God's talking about, I mean, God's warning, stay away from evil, don't do this. The man who um, is evil and becomes good will live. The man who is good and turns evil will die. I mean, he's, it's not like God's playing around. But God says, his rain falls on the good and bad. When Cain committed murder, he sent him to the world, and he said, don't anybody touch him. When Ishmael is separated, he says he will be the leader of a great nation. And this is from gospel, too. Interesting. Think about that. Um, Ishmael will be the leader of a great nation, a wild man. Everybody will hate him, and he'll hate everybody. He's going to allow that to coexist with Christians. Um, and we know that Islam um, defeated Christians all across Europe for 10 centuries. And John, in, in his letter, the, the writer of Revelation, in his letter, I think it's the fourth verse in his letter, he says, those who deny Christ's divinity are the Antichrist. And Islam is adamant in, in claiming Christ is not God. He's just a superior prophet. So we've got all these tensions existing in this work that Melville's dealing with in dealing with these religious problems. But he says, um, 
What's worship? To do the will of God. That's worship. What's the will of God? To do my fellow, to do my fellow man what I have my fellow man do to me. That is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. And what do I wish that Queequeg would do to me? Why unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form? What does Queequeg do? He goes to the chapel. Even though they're all isolated, he goes to the chapel to find out what's why I unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form of worship. Consequently, I must then unite with him in his, er, in his. ergo, I must turn idolater. Um, okay, let me, let me stop for a second. Um, I'm going to just quickly pass over some chapters just to summarize some of the things that happened before we get to Ahab, but let me stop here. Any questions or comments about Ishmael, Queequeg, the importance of America as a country. By its very nature, we're different from Europe. We are absolutely different from Europe with our founding documents. America dealing with the other people coming to our shore. It, 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 I think it's, it's hard for me to think about this without thinking about Othello. Remember, we talked about Merchant of Venice. Merchant of Venice was the commercial regime. And Othello is an Ottoman. He began Islamic, Turkish, and he converts to Christianity. Othello, Shakespeare's dealing with that, the merchant of Venice, the commercial regime, welcoming the other. And you know that Othello's going to take his life because of what happened. He kills his wife, Desdemona. One of the central themes, America's dealing with the other. A Christian, a Christian culture dealing with the other. So let me stop. Any comments about or questions about what's going on here in the opening? We're at that point where we're going to go to sea. And what Melville's going to do is look at all the hidden metaphysical, spiritual realities that are hidden beneath the surface. They're all going to be uncovered at sea. We're going to really see what this is all about at sea. But this is his showing us a Christian culture that is failing, that's about to die. So, any thoughts? Think about my opening questions too about the elevation of the individual will, the private will for Luther, predestination. Because Ish Ahab's going to be Imagine being, imagine growing up in a family wondering whether you were among the damned. Or, or even worse, imagine wondering it and then seeing some traits in you because, your own, because of our, all of us have them, all of us have sins. Imagine growing up with that and seeing some of your own sins. Wouldn't it be harder to doubt that you were one of the damned, that you'd be it would be a more serious question to you whether you weren't among the damned. This is America, which is a country I, I would not leave this country as much as I do not like what's going on in our country right now. But what's going on in America is going on everywhere else in the world too, so it's not, but here we're getting, any comments or questions or? Problem we have in this country. Mm -hmm. I think fatalism leads to that. 
Yeah, and veterans, the rate of drug and drugs pouring in from, and it's not just for poor people. I mean, the rich people are probably more addicted to drugs than the poor people in our country. Um, God, like wealth was going to solve our problems. Or security or comfort or... I must be doing something wrong here. <laughs> Karen, you usually have a question. Okay, let's, we're going to get out. Bob will have nothing bad to say to me tonight. Very, very quickly. In chapter 24, so, um, oh, oh, so, okay, good. I'm glad I, glad I stopped. Um, so here so we're here this is good we're watching a Christian culture that has taken its stand on denying the Catholic world and the sacraments they've taken that is they've taken a stand that the miraculous or the mysterious the sacred is not a part of their lives because for a Catholic, going to Mass means you step into the sacred, the, the sacramental, right? You take sacraments, you believe that that's God, that, that a miracle takes place. So when you go up to receive and the transformation has taken place, the light is, is in the, what do you call it, the G something, the movies that have, you know, G, what's that G word where, huh? CG. CG. You know, where ocean tsunamis come in and walls collapse and you have giant robots and everything's gigantic and when when the priest blesses the host the walls don't collapse water doesn't come pouring in one minute there's bread and wine up there and the next minute there's bread and wine up there so if a believer came in there and, and wanted a miracle he'd, he'd probably go away disappointed um, we're in a culture which has denied the miraculous the sacred and we we're watching it descend to a moral code, a social code, respectability. This is what people do. And they carry on their lives, and their lives are given principally to making money. That's just what we've seen in all these. But just before they ship out, something strange happens. Do you remember what? Page, or chapter 19. Shipmates, have you shipped in that ship? They get this from this strange man. Have you shipped in her, he repeated? Do you mean the ship Pequot, I suppose, said I, trying to gain a little more time for an interrupted look at him? Aye, the Pequot, that ship there, he said, drawing back his... Yes, I said, we have just signed the articles. Anything there about your souls? About what? Oh, perhaps you haven't got any, he said. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying the humor of this because it just—it's funny throughout. It's, oh, it is. It just. Um, good luck to him, and um, they're all the better off. A soul's a sort of fifth wheel to a wagon. <laughs> what are you jabbering about? Said so. Ishmael's got no sense of the sacred or mysterious or. Queequeg said, "I let's go. This fellow's broken loose from somewhere. He's talking about something. I mean, imagine meeting this guy today. You'd say he's nuts. He's crazy." Stop, cried the stranger. You said to me, you haven't seen Old Thunder, have you? Who's Old Thunder? Captain Ahab. What, the captain of our ship, the Pequot? 
I among some of us old sailor chaps, he goes by that name. You haven't seen him? No, we haven't. He's sick, they say, but he's getting better. All right again before long, laughed the stranger with a solemnity derisive sort of laugh. Looky, when Captain Ahad is all right, then this left arm of mine will be all right, not before. Um, that all is strange and they don't know what to make. This is their first experience with Elijah and then in chapter 21, as they're going on board, they get him again. Chapter 21, the beginning. Going aboard, hands off, will you, said I. Looky here, said Queequeg, shaking himself, go away. Ain't going aboard then? Yes, we are, said I, but what business is that of yours? Do you know, Mr. Elijah, that I consider you a little impertinent? <laughs> that is so social. I mean, so, so limited to social, you're impertinent? <laughs> I would have lost my temper by this time. Um, no, 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 I wasn't aware of that, said Elijah, slowly and wonderingly looking from me to Queequeg with the most unaccountable glances. Elijah, said I, you will oblige my friend and me by withdrawing. We are going to the Indian and Pacific Oceans and would... So they're starting out in their careers, or part of their careers. It's going to take three years for a voyage. That's a long commitment of time. <coughs> and would prefer not to be detained. Ye be, be ye coming back before breakfast? <laughs> He's cracked, Queequeg, said I. Come on. Hello cried stationary Elijah, hailing us when we had moved. Never mind him, said I, Queequeg, come on. But he stole up to us again and suddenly clapping his hand on my shoulder said, did you see anything looking like men going towards that ship a while ago? Because they appeared like shadows, the way um, Ishmael describes it. Struck by this plain matter of fact question because he knows it was true, I answered saying yes. I thought I did see four or five men, but it was too dim to to be sure, very dim, very dim, said Elijah. Morning to you, once more we quitted him. But once more he came softly after us and touching my shoulder again said, see if you can find him. Now will you find who? Morning to you, morning. So one of the, one of the questions we're left with as they prepare to go out is, see if you can find them. Who's the them and why should it matter? What's going on? And it took a prophet and this is a man who stands outside the social world. Now to go back where we began, remember I've been claiming pretty seriously, the poet, remember in the ancient world, the poet was always at the center of a community. Odysseus was at the center telling his tales. In modernity, the poet, the artist, get pushed off to the side and there's a high rate of suicide among artists. The poet gets pushed off to the side. Nobody listens to him because he doesn't speak their language. But what happens in a culture when they lose their bearings, their roots are questioned, and all they know is the language they get from work, which everybody speaks. Into this suddenly comes this strange guy. They want to get rid of him, and he's going, did you see them? See if you can find them. See if you can find, find what? What's the prophet saying? How's he, like, how's he like the poet? How's he like um, Melville and Ishmael, who's come to tell us something? Okay. Just very, very quickly, in the last um, chapters before they go out, in The Advocate, it's chapter 24, it's interesting that Ishmael spends a whole chapter defending whalemen. He says it's a, it's a disreputable business. Everybody talks about it. It's violent. And he spends a whole chapter defending it. 
In knights and squires, we see the three mates described. The one interesting thing about Starbuck, which I think everybody should remember, is that he's described as being very intelligent, very prudent, very brave. He wouldn't take a man into his boat who wasn't afraid of whaling because he knows it's a good thing to be afraid of danger. But he said the one mark that he has is a quality of superstition. What does that say about his faith? He's a Christian. That he gets superstitious. Because at, this, because at that point, Starbuck is dealing with the irrational. Everything that reason can't get a hold of. So it happens when those mates, Starbuck, um, Stub, Flask, when they have to come up against Ahab and anything irrational in him. Um, we saw what happened between Ahab and Stubb, how he dealt with him. The Cytology chapter is, <laughs> most people, you know, hate it because, it, remember, it's that chapter in which um, Ishmael describes the um, categories of whales. It's a long, long, probably the longest chapter in the book. But when he finishes, he says, this is, a, what he, after the, a, what is really a satire, on, on rational college thinking, if you want to know something, put it in a class. He reclassified. Yeah, well, but the point is, it's modern. That's what science do. If you want to know something, put it in a class and you understand it. So after this long chapter in which he classifies different kinds of whales, he ends up saying, um, finally it was stated at the outset that this system would not be here and at once perfected. You cannot but plainly see that I have kept my word. But I now leave my um, cytological system standing thus unfinished, even as the great cathedral of Cologne was left, with the crane still standing upon the top of the uncompleted tower. For small erections may be finished by their first architecture. Grand ones, true ones, ever leave the copstone to posterity. God keep me from ever completing anything. This whole book is but a draft, nay, but a draft of a draft. O oh, time, strength, cash, and patience. So, the meaning here is clearly this thing won't be completed except by those people who enter into this to complete its work. That is the readers. And if, if that isn't um, if that isn't playing games with us take a look at um, where's um, Look at biographical chapter 1289. Just we'll finish here. 89. In the midst of all of these chapters, he gives this short biography of Queequeg, and we learn that Queequeg was the, the prince of a king. His heritage is noble. But look at the opening line in 12. Queequeg is the native of Cocovoco, an island far away to the west and south. It's not down in any map. True places never are. Can anybody comment that? True places never are. Meaning what? Ishmael has just classified all the whales and said, God, keep me from finishing anything. <laughs> it's going to be up to posterity. To, and here he says about Queequeg, he came from this place that is not a real place. And he says, like any real thing, um, I love that line. 
an island far away to the west and south. It's not down on any map. True places never are. Any comments on that? True places never are? Not about that in particular, but it, it reminds me of something from, uh, I think it was from C.S. Lewis. He was talking about myth. And he said that uh, people take myth as uh, a made-up story. But, you know, just, just because it's made up doesn't mean that it's not real. Yeah. Are the real realities here on Earth? These are transitory, passing, ephemeral. They won't be here. The realities are elsewhere. Are they down on any map? <laughs> okay, let's, any last comments before we, before we, next week when we meet, I want to start with Ahab. I want to go to the quarterdeck scene and look at what he does to get control of this ship, how he manages that and why, okay? Thank you. Excellent. You're welcome.